Romans 11, verses 34 through 36. You can find that in your worship folder. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, go ahead and keep your worship folder open to that passage or turn uh, to your Bible, Romans eleven thirty-four 34 to 36, as uh, Pastor Ben read it out so well for us. Romans eleven thirty-four to 36 is what we're looking at this, uh, this morning as uh, we come to a conclusion for the section Romans 9 through to 11, Romans eleven thirty-four to 36. Now, as we come to this, I have a question to ask you. And the question is as follows, what do you sing about? What do you sing about? Take me out to the ball game. It's one, two, three strikes and then you're out at the old ball game. What do you sing about? The black-eyed peas? The red hot chili peppers, you two, or for the truly enlightened and initiated cold play? What do you sing about? Some of us only ever dare sing in the shower when the music is um, such that our voice cannot be heard by someone else, or in the car when the music drowns out the uh, tunelessness of our abilities. Uh, Pastor David Bullock uh, uh, tells me that uh, my singing, he says, is not as bad as I make out, which is an interesting backhanded compliment. (laughs) What do you sing about? Every year in the Nevada desert, a group of... um, Many thousands of people, I think it's in the hundreds of thousands, get together. They're called burners, and they meet in the Nevada desert for a few days, a weekend, a short week, and celebrate life and the meaning of life in a semi-liturgical event that gathers around a human effigy, a massive human effigy, probably twice the size of this building, And at the end of that semi-liturgical event, they ceremonially burn the effigy. What do you sing about? What do you celebrate? Uh, The words that we have in front of us this morning are known as a doxology. And a doxology literally means a saying or a word of glory. It is a celebration Something that you sing about or celebrate or glory in, a word or saying of glory. What is your glory? What do you celebrate? What do you sing about? This is uh, the end of uh, this section in Romans and uh, Romans 9 to 11 concludes here, but in a sense, Romans 1 through to 11 concludes here. Romans is really 
in two sections. There are many subsections that you can divide it into. But Romans 1 to 11, section 1. Romans 12 to the end, section 2. That's the most simple way of looking at it. And we are looking at this doxology because it shows us why we are to sing first and foremost about God. Why we are to celebrate first and foremost God. Why our glory is to be first and foremost God. Now, when I say God, I mean what the Bible means by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Lord here is the Lord God, Father God, Son, Holy Spirit, Yahweh, revealed incarnate in Christ. Why then are we to celebrate, glory, sing about him above all? Now you would think this is an obvious message to preach uh, in the Bible Belt, in Wheaton, in church, to uh, Christians. But you know, the longer I'm here, the more obvious it is to me that much of the activity among even evangelicals, whatever that word means these days, even among Bible-loving Christians, much of the activity in this area is what I would call God-lacking. There is a lot of uh, human-level activity, much of it is good. But God is noticeable by his absence of reference to him even, let alone centering upon him. We celebrate each other, we celebrate community, we celebrate authenticity. In other words, we celebrate humans. But we do not celebrate God, not much, not really. It is almost as if uh, if God actually showed up this morning and did something, it would catch us all by surprise. As if, if God interrupted the sermon and took it in a different direction this morning, it would catch us all by surprise. As if, if God decided that he was going to speak to us this morning, we would not know what to do about it. I had a uh, very good non-Christian friend when I was at college, and uh, one of the things she would say to me as we talked about the meaning of life, she would say to me that in our world today, with all its issues and challenges and struggles, she would say to me that it seems as if God is such a stranger. I had not expected to find that to be true among the Bible Belt. We try to stand out in various ways and do various things, but do we first and foremost ask ourselves, what do we sing about? What do we celebrate? 
Now you see then this doxology is not just a song. It's also telling us why to sing. It is the logic, the logos of the doxology. The underpinning power, the rationale, the motivation for praise of God. And in this logos of doxology, there are three pieces of wood that are stacked one on top of each other as Paul builds an altar of praise in hope that the fire would then come down. The first is the mind, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, the mind? How absurd that we fish, we worms, we dogs. We single-cell amoebas could grasp everything there is to know about the infinite glory of the infinite God. How even more absurd that we would try to tell him how to do what he is meant to be doing as running the universe. And yet, we do try exactly that, give him counsel. Uh, God, uh, I don't know whether you've noticed, but there's a lot of suffering in this world. You might like to do something about that, just an idea. God, I don't know whether you've noticed, but the country's in a little bit of a mess and what's going on with our political leaders, not to mention racial division and all the rest. You might like to do something about that. Just an idea. Now, my friends, my dear college church brothers and sisters, my flock of little sheep, this is why we preach the Bible. What Bible teaching does for us all is it regularly shows me and you that we do not have the first clue what we are talking about. It lets God set the agenda. Who would have thought that to him be the glory could be a relevant word for people today? Don't preach on that, Pastor. Oh, no, no, no. Preach on five perfect ways to get over your anxiety. Uh, preach on how to bring up your children. Preach on sex. That will bring them in. I guarantee it. Don't preach on glory. And yet when we look at what God says in the Bible... We find 
It blows our minds. Why, why is it that we spend so little time even thinking about God? Well, I, I'll tell you why. Here's why. Because we do not think there's anything much to think about. I am shocked. It's not too strong a word. I am shocked how little people in the Bible Belt read Christian books and how awful are the books they read. They read the latest garbage published by some author who has no idea what he's talking about and packages it with a nice, sweet, smiling face and it's full of false teaching. And we lap it up because it tickles our ears. But when was the last time you read something like The Valley of Vision, a book of Puritan prayers? When, or when was the last time you read a theological book? When was the last time you read a book? The scandal of the evangelical mind is a scandal for a reason, and Paul is telling us why. Here's the reason. We think we know better than God, so why would we spend time trying to know more about God? Now, of course, in its extreme form, this is the basic um, issue with atheism. As uh, J.G. Voss put it, an atheist is someone who thinks he can contain God within his own mind. That's an atheist, someone who thinks they can contain God within their own mind. That's a brilliant way of putting it, absolutely right. And I found that many times in conversations with people. I mean, could it be, little worm, that God actually knows more about that than you do? Could it be, little child, that your father and mother knows better how to drive the car than you do? And yet we want to grab the steering wheel of the universe and tell God the direction he needs to take the world. And so, of course, we spend almost no time whatsoever reading the Bible. Why bother? After all, God is just a little God, a small God. We already know better than he does. Yes, God is a sort of banner, a sign, a scrolling banner on our webpage, uh, a sign outside our doors of our communities, our religious communities. Um, yes. And then we just keep on going on doing all our sacrifices and ceremonies. We might say a little prayer of a sort of invitation to God as if God needed our invitation. It's like the 2008 Wall Street crash. 
we have all these packages of mortgaged-backed derivatives. And they have tons of subprime loans hidden underneath. And so we can keep on selling the junk onto someone else to keep the party going. But underneath it all, basically, we have a subprime view of God. We sing about the ball game. We'd rather go and watch football than go to church. Certainly rather than think about God. Why would we study the Bible? We already know better. Mind. Second, money. Uh, Look with me at verse 35. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? What a question. (laughs) Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid by God? How delicious. What wonderful apostolic sarcasm. Let's think about that for a moment with, uh, with me, will you, says Paul. You've been tracking with me for the first 11 chapters all about these mercies of God that are going to bring all nations to God. They're going to reconcile hell, bound, damnation, destined sinners to a paradise of heaven forever. You've been thinking about that, so your mind should be blown. Ah, but says Paul, we're also human. Thinking little things about God is not the only or even the most powerful reason why we do not rejoice in God or have fire fall in our worship services. No, 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 no. The real reason is much more practical, says Paul. It's money. So along comes his um, sarcasm, his irony. Who has given a gift to God so that he can get repaid by God? Let's think about that for a moment, says Paul. Anyone ever lent money to God, the owner of everything? Now, of course, we don't do that, we say. Really? You ever felt bitter about giving? You ever felt, well, I have served so hard, and who is grateful? You ever think, well, I give more than that other person, so surely God deserves to give me something. You say, okay, but what's that got to do with praise and worship of God? How do those connect? Well, actually everything. Haven't Haven't you heard what Jesus taught? Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. 
We talked about the scandal of the evangelical mind. Look, the scandal of college church is that every year we have to scramble to make our budget. I'll tell you this, the day College Church begins truly to excel will be the day when we regularly make more than our budget. That's growth. The church of God is more important than our wood-paneled homes. You refit your house, you get a new kitchen every year, you build on extensions to your house. Meanwhile, just here in the commons this morning, there's a leak in the roof. You complain about making budget? Why? Because we're not glorying in God, we're glorying in money. I would say this, money is the vice grip around Wheaton spirituality. If you want revival to come here to Wheaton, there's one thing that needs to take place. We need to give as we have received, and we have received. A subprime view of God leads to a sick view of money. God doesn't need your money. It's, it's his anyway, you know. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money to get done whatever he wants to get done. No, it's not for his need that you give. It's for your need. It's for you. It is more blessed to give than receive. See, if you are not joyfully worshiping God, it's either because what you think about God is so small, there's not much point to, or there's not much of anything to get excited about. He's just a slightly bigger version of ourselves. And speaking personally of myself, there's not much to worship about me. If he's just a slightly bigger version of us, why would we fall down in praise? This is the huge mistake that people make when they try to bring God down to our level and make him more acceptable. No, we need to have our minds blown. It's either that, or it's because the cares of this life are throttling the life out of the good seed that has been sown. And the only solution is to give generously open-handedly and then you'll find the blessing and the joy mind money and finally the last piece on the 
The last piece of wood on this uh, altar of praise that uh, is being built here upon, uh, upon this altar, the last piece of wood, mind, money, third, what I'm going to call matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, matter. This is verse 36. Now, I've spent a good 25 years or so thinking about this, so I'm not going to be able to get it all across to you in the next two and a half minutes, but I'll, I'll do some of it, give you a taste at least. Okay. So verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Now, when you read that, Unless you are especially sensitive to to the Bible and especially careful, when you read that, it's so easy to think it's just a sort of exclamation mark at the end of this part of Romans. But it's far, far, far more than that. Let Let me try and explain that for you. See, we, you and I, at this stage of the 21st century... We have a certain world view. That is, we view the world, reality, everything, all things, in a certain kind of way. It is what is known as the scientific world view. Obviously, Paul wrote before the scientific revolution of Newton and all the rest. And so Paul's worldview, how he viewed everything, matter, everything, Paul's worldview was different. We tend to view the world as like a box, a mechanistic box, which we have to sort of jump out of to connect to God. It's not how Paul thought about it. Now, for him, from and through and to everything, all things. Now, there is a false, (laughs) there are a couple of dangers here, extremes that are wrong. One is called pantheism. That is the view that God is just a part of everything. He's not distant from anything. Pantheism. Now, the other extreme, there's a view of God as distant from all things. And that view is called deism, pantheism, deism. Now, the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, is neither of those. The Christian worldview about things, matter, everything, all things, neither pantheistic, nor deistic, neither pantheism nor deism. The Christian worldview is that God is present everywhere, but that he is not distant from everything. God is neither present in everything, nor is he distant from everything. Neither present in everything, nor distant from everything. God is actually Both. So, technical term alert. God is imminent, 
that is, he is present right now, and transcendent, that is, above everything, both at the same time. Or as Paul puts it here, from him and through him and to him are all things. So, here's how this works. We tend, at this stage of life, modernity, 21st century, we tend to think in scientific, Newton-like worldview ways. We tend to think of stuff matter, things, as like a box, and to connect to God, we've got to somehow jump out of the box and sort of find God in a different realm. Actually, ironically, um, in the last 60 years or so, so this is not new for scientists, uh, this, what I call the scientific worldview, has actually changed. In the last 60 years or so, really ever since Einstein, and more particularly quantum mechanics, the contemporary view of everything, all things, is really that matter is just energy. And in a sense, that's a little bit more like Paul's ancient view. Now, whichever those two scientific worldviews is in the end right, I don't know. They seem to change their minds every 50, 60 years or so. But what this means, of course, is that God is not such a stranger. God, biblically, is both transcendent and imminent. And scientists now know that in all of reality there is a mathematical logic, the logos of the doxology. God is not just up there, he's down here. Our breathing, my speaking, the beating of our hearts is all constantly being upheld continually by the word of his power. Now you say, well, I can see why you spent 25 years thinking about that, but what, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that you should fear when you sin. There is nowhere you can hide from God, not even your thoughts. You know, when people uh, get stuck in pornography or some sort of sexual sin, 
we come along and we talk about accountability and all the rest, and that's fine and good and important. But I'll tell you what the real cure is. The fear of God. Do you realize that when you watch porn, God is watching with you? Put that in your mind next time you click on some picture of some naked lady. Do you realize that when you buy porn, you are buying someone who has potentially been human trafficked and that God not only knows but is upholding by the word of his power and the activities of all that are a personal and direct, not, not distant, but direct and immediate offense to him. That's one thing it means. I'll tell you one other thing it means. It means that when you are broken, and I've been a pastor long enough to know that basically means all of us at one point or another. When you are broken, when someone is treacherous to you or when you have some health news that is disappointing, when you are broken and bleeding and you wonder whether God notices or cares, not only does he notice and care, He is right there with you. And I don't mean that just in a footprints across the sand kind of way, though I'm sure that's true and he carries us through difficult things, but that he is actually the one who suffered for the sins of the world. There's a very famous book written about the Holocaust by uh, someone called Ellie Weasel. I'm not sure whether it's Weasel or Weasel, but Ellie Weasel. The book's called Night. And this famous book has a scene where Ellie, uh, then quite a young boy, is um, watching with his dad. He's watching babies burnt. And there are some men being hung on a gallows. And he came from a pious Jewish background, many of them there. And so someone shouts out as they watch all this going on, the men being hung on the gallows, someone shouts out, where is God? And someone else replies, He's on the gallows. And in a sense, that's right. 
He is right there on the cross. Historical event that took place in time, in and through and from and to and bearing all the weight of the pain you feel. And that moment in time can now take your pain and sorrows and lift you up to praise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.